All right, before we begin, we're going to be in Joshua 9, but I want to ask a question now before the setup gets there. How many of you have had a song come on the radio or on your playlist uh, and, you know, your first reaction is, man, I haven't heard that song in 10, 15, 20 years, and then you know every word and you can still sing along. Anybody else have that, right? You're like, wow, I can't believe I haven't heard that song in so long, but I know all the words. Eh? How many of you have a movie that you could quote, like, for... So anytime we watch Remember the Titans in, in our family, this is how the conversation goes before the movie starts. Addie turns to me, Sam, what are we not going to do? We're not going to quote every line of the movie. Five minutes into the movie, pause. Sam, what did we say we weren't going to do? Right, anybody else? Anybody have the movie that you could just run through the script verbatim in your mind? Okay, keep, keep those answers. We're going we're gonna to circle back to those. We're going to be in Joshua 9. Before we dive in, we're going to, like we did with Joshua 8, like we, or with Joshua 7, rather, we're going to go verse through verse. We're going to unpack the weight of Scripture and, and make sure that we are treating it with the respect that it deserves. So before we do, please join me in prayer. Lord, uh, this, is, this is no small thing to sit down and ask you to teach us from your word. God, I, I confess in my own life there are times where it's hard for me to ask you to do that because I'm afraid that I'm not in alignment with Scripture and that by opening your word might mean that I have to change. Uh, forgive me for those times. Forgive us, God, collectively as a body if we ever approach your word with trepidation. May this be something that we passionately pursue, that we long for, that we crave even if it means that we have to be completely broken down and remade and conformed to what your word says. Oh, Lord, we thank you for giving it to us. What a privilege it is to have access to this. And so, God, in this time, would you teach us? Would you take us deeper? Would you conform us to Jesus? Make us look like Jesus. Make us live like Jesus. It's only through the teaching of your spirit that we'll understand. It's only through the empowerment of your spirit that we'll be able to do this, God. And so that's what we ask in our individual lives and in the lives of this body. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start Joshua 9, and we're going to really focus on the first 13 verses. Well, 3 through 13, but we'll start in verse 1. And so the battle of Jordan has happened, or the battle of Jericho has happened, and then we looked at the battle of Ai has happened. It didn't go well the first time. Then they sought counsel from the Lord. They sanctified themselves. They consecrated themselves. Then they won the battle of Ai. And so now we're looking at what happens next in the lives of the Israelites in the promised land. This is 9 verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all, the, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us then. How can we make a covenant with you? 
They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of the Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Why is this important for us to study? What are the principles that we see here? Well, I think the very obvious principle, and how many times have I said we're at war? I mean, goodness. In case you missed it the first million times I said it, guys, we're at war every day of our lives. And the first lesson that I see here in Joshua 9 that we have to understand is that our enemy works through deceit. Because I think sometimes there's a temptation to reduce the enemy to a, a bumbling fool who's going to come forward to us and be very obvious, right? The enemy's going to walk up and be like, hey, I'm the devil. Here is the sin I want to lead you in. Any interest? But we have to understand that our enemy works in deceit. What did it say about? And it's deceit with an agenda. Make no mistake, it's, de it's deceit with an intended purpose. What does it say here? It says, but the people of Gibeon acted with cunning, and they went and made provisions. They acted with cunning, with this intentional deception that took effort on their part to carry out. And then the point of this deception, they come to Joshua and the people, and they say, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. See, there's an intention to the enemy's deceit, and we have to understand that this is this micro example of the enemy of the people of Israel is how the enemy in our own lives works and operates today. And when you know the strategy of the enemy, it's far easier to ready your defenses against it. Consider this is who he is, this is how he works. Revelation 12:9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is the essence of our enemy, is deception. Think about it. Think about our own lives. How many of us, if the enemy came to us and said, hey, I've got a great plan for how you could simultaneously lie to and steal from your boss and your company. You in? No, of course not. I don't want to deliberately lie to and steal from the company I work for. I, I know the Ten Commandments. I know this is wrong. So he doesn't say that. The enemy says, look, you're super busy today. Everybody else is doing it. Just have your coworker clock in for you before you get there. It's okay. It'll only be this one day. Tomorrow you'll make sure you give an honest day's work for what you have promised and agreed to. But today, today, just go ahead and have your coworker clock in early for you. That's no big deal. The enemy doesn't come to us and say, hey, you want to watch this sexually explicit content? It's going to create in you a poison of lust that will ruin every relationship in your life and lead you to adultery in your heart. No, the enemy says, look, it's, it's just a TV show. 
It's just a movie. It's just a book series. It's the most popular book series in your age group. Everybody's reading. What are you going to talk about with your peers if you're not reading this book? What are you going to talk about if you're not watching this TV show, if you're not watching this movie? Look, it's nobody. You can separate reality from fiction. That's why I asked you how many of you can think of song lyrics that you haven't heard in 20 years. Because we can't deceive ourselves. What we ingest affects us. It sticks with us. The movies we've watched over and over again, they teach us how to think. So we know them. It's part of our mind. The enemy knows this. This is how he operates. He doesn't come to us and say, hey, you want to hold on to bitterness and resentment? It'll, it'll absolutely cripple you emotionally, Joe. You won't be able to engage with anyone in a healthy way. You, you any interested in that? Joe's going to be like, no, I'm not interested in bitterness and resentment. That's going to cripple me emotionally. So instead, the enemy says, no, Joe, you have to understand, you have a right to remain angry at this person. They really hurt you. I mean, you're the victim here. So, you know, when it talks about forgiveness, just, just push that down the road because that doesn't necessarily apply right now. Guys, the enemy is not going to walk up with a neon sign saying, here are my evil intentions. He's going to present it in as deliberate of a way as possible to make it as acceptable as possible to us. And before we get holier than thou and we say, yeah, that's what's happened to the world around us, and it has. The enemy, though, it's to say, Satan, the deceiver of the whole earth. The lost are in deception. So they shouldn't be shamed or scorned. They should be grieved over. I mean, it should break our heart that there are still people living under the deception of the enemy. But before we're tempted to get all holier than thou and say, yeah, that's just a problem for the world around us, I want you to consider those verses. And we're not going to read through all of them. I actually did a video on these verses about a month or so ago that we're going to resend out. Make no mistake, the scriptures are very clear that we are to be aware of the world around us. We are to be mindful of our circumstances, of our situations. We're to be mindful of what's going on in our culture. But scripture, in my opinion, from the verses I see, scripture is even more abundantly clear that we are to be on guard against lies and deception within the church. Every one of those passages talks about deception within the church, within God's people. John 8, where I read in John 8, where Jesus says, you are a, you're children of your father. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to the people who would have said, we are God's people. And he's saying, no, you're not. You're given over to deceit. You're given over to deception. How many of you have ever listened to a Christian podcast, watched a Christian TV channel, listened to Christian music, read a book by a... Like, I'm expecting every hand should go up, right? Like, have you ever listened to another Christian, not me? Yes, okay, right? Have I ever said, or have, I, have you ever opened a book? I do this on a weekly basis. I read stuff by Christian authors, or I listen to Christian podcasts. Have you ever opened a book or turned on a TV channel or tuned into your favorite podcast, and they've opened with, hey, I'm so glad you guys are here. Thanks for joining us. We've got some great heresy for you today. We, we're, just, we're really going to abuse the scripture. We're going to distort it. We're going to take it out of context. We're going to manipulate it to say what I want it to say. Who's ready to unpack some heretical nonsense with me? Has, have you, has anyone ever heard that? Thank goodness nobody put your hands up. I, I've listened to a lot of heretical stuff. I've read a lot of heretical books. And they don't come forward and say, hey, I'm going to open this book up with a chapter explaining the heresy we're about to dive into. The enemy works in deceit. 
We have to be aware of this. We have to be conscious of the deliberate attempts by the enemy to manipulate the truth for a specific desired outcome, for an agenda that will further the purposes. Because what's the second thing we see here? That our enemy is not uninformed. It really seems like, so in Exodus 23, 32 to 33, God is talking to the Israelites about the promised land. And he explicitly says, you shall make no covenant with the people of the promised land and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God repeats this exact same command and warning to the people in Deuteronomy. So God has explicitly said, the people in the land you're about to go into, don't tolerate their culture. Don't allow it to affect, to intertwine, to enmesh with your own culture. It will become idolatry to you. It will become a snare to you. You cannot make a covenant with them. But then he also says in Deuteronomy 20, 11 through 15, God lays out that it's okay for the people of Israel to make a covenant with people from other lands. So they can't make a covenant with the people in their immediate cultural context, but they can make a covenant of peace with the people in other lands far away from them. It, it seems like the Gibeonites know this. Because what do they lead off with? They don't ask like, hey, who are you allowed to make a covenant with? Like they say, hey, we've come from a really far away land. We're the people you're allowed to make a covenant with. Make a covenant with us. It, it seems like the enemy here is very well informed of how the Israelites are to behave based on what they're demanding. And consider Satan and Jesus in the desert. What did Satan use to come against Jesus? Not just temptation, but distortion of Scripture. He knew the Scripture. He was able to quote it to him. A.W. Tozer once said that the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is still the devil. We can't expect our enemy to be uninformed and ignorant. Where I'm weakest, when I'm most vulnerable, that's when he's going to attack. Where you are weakest, the biggest pain point in your life, that's where the enemy is going to attack. Because he's deceitful, because he's informed, because he's intentional in what he wants, and that's to destroy you. Remember the lesson of the spies in AI that we looked at last week. We cannot underestimate the enemy who exists in our life. And I gotta be honest, so many of the problems in my own life at different times have arisen because I did precisely that. I underestimated the war that I was engaged in. And I thought the enemy would come to me with obvious tactics. I thought the enemy would come when I was at my strongest, when I was at my best. So when the enemy comes with deceit at your weakest, are we prepared for this? The people of Israel weren't. But then they make their fatal mistake. Let's dive back in. This is Joshua 9, 14 and 15. I'm going to reread 13. So they've just laid out their deception. They said, These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. They're presented with this deception of the enemy. They're presented with this alternative to God's plan. They're presented with this other option to what God has laid out is right and proper for them. And it says they did not ask counsel of the Lord. 
That's a, that's a pretty Christianese phrase. That's, that's a pretty strong bit of church lingo there. You know, when we gather together to pray, you hear things like, Lord, we, we, we seek your counsel. God, we seek your will. Direct us. Give us counsel, Lord. It's a phrase that we use, that we toss around, but I can't help but wondering how many of us are tossing that phrase around or hearing that phrase, and we're not really sure what it means. Okay, I know I'm supposed to ask counsel from the Lord. I, I know I'm supposed to get counsel from the Lord. What does that actually look like? How does that work in my life? James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Okay, so if the Bible says ask counsel from the Lord, how do I do that? Well, once again, we turn back to Scripture because like we've looked at several times in this series, God always gives the next step. Sometimes it's, hey, head in this direction, but he gives the next step. With Achan and his sin, he said, here's the problem, but here's the solution. So once again, when we come to this question of how do we ask counsel from the Lord, God lays it out for us. And that's what I want to spend this next half of the message looking at because these are things that, y'all, like, we need to be applying these in our daily, life, our daily lives. I mean, absolutely, these things we're about to look at need to define how we approach this life. And the first thing that we see when the Bible says, ask counsel from the Lord, and we see time and time again, seek counsel from the Lord, what's the primary way we need to be doing this? Through His Word. Psalm 1, 1 through 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So over here is the bad counsel. This is the bad, avoid this counsel directly contradicted to it. Don't do this. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And I've said this before. Let me repeat it in case you forgot, in case there's anybody new joining us online in person who's never heard this. When the Bible talks about meditation, it's not talking about this mysticism, empty your mind and, you know, just try and sit. No, biblical meditation is saturation. Biblical meditation is a, a consumption of nothing but. So when it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night, it says, Blessed is the man who looks at God's Word and says, I will consume every moment of my life with this. That's biblical meditation. Psalm 119, 9-11, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. That goes back to my point earlier. None of us open up a book or turn on a podcast and hear them say, Hey, you ready for some heresy? They present it, but we are to test every spirit. Well, that's great, Sam, but how do we do it? Excellent follow-up question. Acts 17, 11, one of my absolute favorite verses. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word every day with all eagerness, examining it against Scripture to see if it were true. That's how we test the spirit. That's how we seek counsel from the Lord. I'm not saying close those books, turn off the TV channel, stop listening to the music, you know, unsubscribe from the podcast. No, I'm not saying that at all. I do this on a daily basis. But I'm saying what Scripture is saying, and that's why I'm saying it, 
is because Scripture is saying, receive the word with eagerness. Listen to teachers with eagerness. Seek out wisdom from others with eagerness. But your standard must always be to then examine it against Scripture to see if it is true. Joe, is 2 plus 2 17? No? Why not? Because 2 plus 2 is 4. I asked Joe, is 2 plus 2 17? He says, no. Why not, Joe? Because 2 plus 2 is 4. See, he knows what a lie is because he knows what the truth is. You want counsel from the Lord? Open his word. I mean, when I hear people say things, oh, I'm just waiting for God to speak to me. He did. In a, in a very extensive, thorough letter. I'm just, I'm waiting to hear from the Lord. Cool, what scriptures say? Well, I don't know, I'm waiting to hear from the Lord. I mean, it's called His Word for a reason. Consider Colossians 3.16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Let it abide in you. Let it be so integral to your life that you can't even fathom the separation of it. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Oh, please nobody get mad at me. I'm about to be really, really blunt. And I'm preaching to myself too. If you claiming to be a disciple of Jesus are attempting to go through life and the word of God is not a daily part, I mean an hour, like if the word of God is not a core foundation of your life, you are a fool and you are setting yourself up for misery and failure. How do we seek counsel from the Lord? How do we receive counsel from the Lord? By meditating on His law day and night, by knowing it. So that when I turn on a podcast, when I turn on a TV channel, when I'm reading a book, and I hear nonsense, I hear heresy, I'm able to say, wait a minute, I know what God's Word says, and what you just said is different. I want nothing to do with that. Receive the Word with eagerness. Examine it against Scripture to see if it is true. And here's the other thing. The Bible is not Google. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. Because there are questions that we have that there's not one verse that directs it, that directly addresses it, right? Hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job. Should I do it? Let me just turn to page 147 of the Bible where he gives a nice little article, 10 signs you should quit your job. That's not how the Bible works. There are questions in our life that I can't unfortunately say to you. Look, if you turn to Colossians 3.1, it literally talks about, should I spend money on a new car or should I save it up for a home repair? No, that's not how Scripture works. But what Scripture does is it provides God's plan for our lives. It provides God's structure for this world. It provides His principles that we are to live by. So that when we come to these questions, these are very real questions that weigh on us. Should I quit my job? That's a hard question. That's a big thing. That's something that I want to seek counsel from the Lord in. So instead, I look at biblical principles and I look at how He's called me to live. 
I look at how He's called me to give, how He's called me to serve, how He's called me to love my family, how He's called me to engage with the body of believers. I look at all these principles in His Word and I say, okay, if my job is an active obstacle to living out these principles and mandates of God, then maybe it is time to quit my job. See, we have to know how to apply His Word, and that's going to mean handling all of it correctly so that we can look at what He's laid out from Genesis to Revelation so that we can seek His counsel. I say it again, please, if, if you hear nothing else from me in my lifetime, hear this, know God's Word. I, like, I literally don't care if you forget my name. If somebody, hey, what's your passion name? I don't know. What I do know is he will not stop talking about how much I need to spend time in God's word. I'm totally okay with that. Like, if you have space for, in your memory for one of those two things, forget my name, forget what I look like, but please, 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 people, know God's word. Live in God's word. This is the first thing that he says is how you seek counsel from the Lord. The second way he lays out is through prayer. And again, it's so beautifully given to us. James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says that you do not have because you do not ask. Now, there's a caveat to that. Don't let that verse get twisted out of context. It says you ask and you do not receive because you ask with impure motives. You ask with an unclean heart. So our heart must be right in asking. But when our heart is right in asking, when we are genuinely pursuing the will of God, the heart of God, it says, if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord, and He gives it. How do we get counsel from the Lord? We ask. Matthew 6.13, the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus is teaching His disciples, this is how you pray. What does He include as part of that prayer? Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, give us counsel. Lead me not into temptation. I mean, this is, it's so powerfully stated in these passages that when we have a need in our life, especially something like wisdom, something like counsel, something like direction, go to the Lord and ask for it. It seems so obvious, but we forget this. One of the verses that has really just taken a whole new rich beauty and depth for me since having Violet is the passage where it's talking about God as Father. And it says, how many of you, if your child asked you for a loaf of bread, would give them a stone? Or if they asked for this, would give them a, like a serpent? And then it says, if you who are earthly parents know how to give your children good things, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give to you? Like that, that I, I liked that verse, and then I had a daughter, and that verse went so much deeper. There is nothing that I wouldn't give to my daughter if it was for her best. You know, when she gets older and she's like, hey, can we have ice cream for dinner? Like the first night, I'm probably going to say yeah. Like the, the seventh night in a row, even I know like, okay, we should probably eat something that's natural and not mint chocolate flavored. But if it's something that's good for her and she asks me for it, I will do everything I can to give it to her. I am the world's worst father compared to God. I am the least powerful, the least capable, the least able to give compared to what God can do. 
So if I'm looking for counsel in life, why would I not ask my Father who loves me perfectly and has the power to give perfectly? So if you ever come to me and you say, hey, I'm looking for counsel in this, my first two questions are going to be, what did the Bible say about it? What's your prayer life been about it? I mean, those are the first two. Because right? like, if we're not starting there, forget it. I mean, if, if I'm not starting with God's Word and prayer to God, I've missed the point entirely. But then there's a third way that God lays out. And this is why I believe so strongly in the ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word for church, for local church, for a local body of believers. This is why I believe so strongly in it. Because one of the ways that God lays out for His people to receive counsel is through the church. Consider these passages. Numbers 27, 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. Numbers, you have a question you need answered? Go to your priest. He'll go to God on your behalf. Malachi 2.7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And then we're not going to read all of them, but hopefully even just the volume of those verses demonstrate that this is a lesson God gives to his people over and over again. Seek counsel from godly people. I mean, all of those passages in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes talk about seek counsel from the godly people in your lives. It's clear. It's unavoidable. And so if we have detached ourselves from the body of believers, if we have detached ourselves from godly people, where are we going to go for this third option? That's why I believe so strongly in the local church. It's why to go back to the deception of the enemy, I think one of the greatest lies he's, convicted, he's convinced Christians of over the last five, ten years is you don't need a local body. You're fine on your own. <laughs> My wife will tell you, sometimes when we watch different sermons or listen to different podcasts, uh, I get quite exasperated with some of what I hear. Uh, I've never thrown anything yet. Um, I, when I get exasperated, I tend to grab my hair. And we were, we were watching the one thing, and she, she said, your hair is like six inches straight up. Like, this is, you need to go take a breath. And I was like, yeah, I need to go walk around the house for a second. I was listening to a podcast, and I'm not going to even tell you the name of the podcast because nobody has any business listening to these fools. And the whole premise was the true sign of a Christian, the real sign of a mature Christian, is when you get to a point where you graduate from the necessity to be engaged with a local body. And they were like, I, I, just, I feel bad for all these immature Christians who still feel like they need the church. I, I came really close to needing a new phone when they said that. Uh, that almost went out the window on the highway. And I was like, wait, that'd be bad. I'm just going to turn it off instead. That's such hot garbage. The local church exists to build one another up, to encourage one another, to worship together, to serve one another. And one of the ways it does so is through godly counsel. One of the hardest things for me to hear as a pastor, and this was when I was an elder as well, is when people would come and we'd, we'd have a hard conversation and they would say, man, I've been, I've been wrestling with that. That's been a weight. That's been a burden for six months. That's been, a, that's been a question that I've wanted to ask for three years and I've just been dealing with that pain. That 
I, I die a little bit inside when I hear that from my brothers and sisters. I want you to come to me with your depression. I want you to come to me with your anxiety. I want you to come to me with your fears. I want you to come to me with your sorrows. I want you to come to me with, hey, I was wounded by this person years ago and I've never been able to forgive them. I, I want you to come to me with those things so that we can see what God's Word says about them together. The elders love you deeply. We want you to come to us when you have hard questions. We're not afraid of hard questions. I might not know the answer right away. The elders might not know the answer right away. But if we don't, if I can't, if you come to me with a hard question and I can't think of what Scripture says, my response is going to be, awesome, let's pursue this together. Please, take advantage of this third option that God has laid out. But if the believer is not utilizing these three means that God has laid out for receiving counsel, it's like trying to drive a car with no wheels. It's not going to go anywhere. I mean, you might be able to scrape along a little bit. I don't know, cars. Neil, how long could I drive on like just rims with no tires? Short, Gene's laughing. Gene's just shaking. He's like, oh my goodness, we need to teach this pastor something about mechanics. Neil says a short distance. So maybe a Christian can limp along without the counsel from God's word for a little bit. Maybe they can limp along a little further without prayer. Maybe they can stretch their lives and get by without counsel from other godly believers in their lives. But it's going to be a real short distance. And you're going to do some major damage along the way. He lays these out. He warns the people. He says, hey, the enemy came to you with deception and you did not seek counsel from the Lord and therefore you broke the covenant that I called you to. Family, we, we've got to spend time in God's Word. That's not optional. It has to be a hallmark of your lives. You need to spend time in prayer. That's not optional. That's not reserved for the pastors and the staff of a church. Prayer must be central to your lives. And third, utilize the body. This is what God lays out for us. So this big question, this Christianese, this church lingo of seek counsel from the Lord, it really simply breaks down to His Word, prayer, and godly believers in your lives. If these three things are absent, we're in trouble. So this week, as we consider this, as we consider this idea of deception and counsel, this example given to us by the people of Israel as they engage with the Gibeonites, I want you to read Jude and Psalm 119. And look for what we talked about in those two books. Look at how they tie together. Well, Jude's a book, Psalm 119's a chapter. Look at how they tie together. But read Jude and Psalm 119, and then I'm going to ask us to do something, right? We look at how do we seek counsel from the Lord, His Word and prayer, starting there. So I'm asking you all, Wednesday, I, I have no way of knowing if you're going to engage with this. I'm not going to show up. We're not sending the elders and the staff out to your house to knock. But I'm asking, Wednesday from 8 to 9, would you set aside whatever you normally do in that hour for Scripture and prayer? Yeah, but Sam, you don't understand my favorite sitcom, DVR it. Or skip it. I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine a scenario where I get to heaven and God's like, yeah, you spent too much time in prayer and in my word. That's, 
That's hard for me to imagine. It's painfully easy for me to imagine a scenario where I get to heaven and I realize, wow, I did not spend enough time in his word or in prayer. So I'm asking us as a body, would we set aside one hour on Wednesday night for whatever we normally do? And now if you have work, this is not a work excuse. I I don't want any calls from your boss that so-and-so didn't show up for their shift. But pick another hour. I work Wednesday night, cool. Thursday night I don't work, I'm setting aside an hour Thursday. Husbands, lead your families in this. Step up. Well, the kids were going to do, nope, family, we're doing this. We're spending an hour Wednesday night. We're going to read scripture and we're going to pray. Wives, if your husbands won't set the standard, you do it. Model for your children this. Kids, if your parents forget, call them on it. All right, kids, we've got a couple kids. If your parents forget Wednesday night, I want you to say, whoa, mom and dad, hey, we're taking an hour and we're spending it in scripture and prayer. We need to pursue this as a body. And then the prayer, idea, the prayer ideas are simple. Lord, make me more like Jesus. I mean, Jesus was such a model of seeking time to be with God. He taught us how to pray. Lord, create in me a craving for your word. Jesus dealt with the deceit of Satan by properly handling scripture. May we be people who do the same. Let's not make the same mistake that the people of Israel did with the Gibeonites. Let's learn from them. That's one of the beauties of God's word is that even when it's a hard chapter, it's an opportunity to learn and to grow. Please, let's do that together. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for your patience. I think of how many times I've gotten this wrong in my life. And you're so patient. You're so merciful. It doesn't matter if I've messed it up until this very day. Today is a chance to turn that around and to be someone whose life is defined by your word, who seeks and creates prayer time to be with you and to learn from you. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness in providing us with these means of learning from you. May we be people who constantly hunger to go deeper with you, to be in alignment with you, to know what you are doing, to know where you are going, and to walk in step with the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.